0: Welcome to The New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of The New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Zeke Fox, Bloomberg reporter and author of Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Number Go Up is a delight to read, the best and most comprehensive overview of cryptomania I've read. Zeke and I are recording this on Friday, November 3rd, one day after Bankman-Fried, founder of the crypto exchange FDX, was given a guilty verdict on seven criminal accounts. Zeke spent several years reporting on and researching FTX, SBF, and other crypto companies and characters. We'll discuss this history and the recent news that has validated everything Zeke wrote about number go up. Zeke, thanks for joining me today on The New Books Network. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, th- this is a perfect timing. I was really pleased that uh, <laughs> that we were able to, to talk just after uh, the verdict. So there is a bit of a conclusion, uh, not that you write about in the book, but just to the story that you tell But before talking about SBF and everything that you've been writing about for the past few years, sort of if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I'm 38. I've been a reporter at Bloomberg now
1: for 13 years. I started off covering really boring parts of Wall Street, such as interest rates, which it turned out would be important in the future. So I'm glad I learned about them, but I always was drawn to shady characters and I wanted to know, I'm some, I'm kind of a, I'm a rule follower. You know, I went to school, I got a job, I got married, I go to work every day. But I'm kind of fascinated by these people who don't play by the rules. Because once you decide that you don't care and that you're willing to take that risk of maybe getting in trouble, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. And so my big break was maybe almost 10 years ago now, I happened upon this area of finance called Merchant Cash Advance. And it's basically a polite term for loan sharking. And these guys, they're based in New York, largely. They call small businesses and they'll like call a bodega and be like, hey, is your fridge broken? Do you need 10 grand? Eventually you find someone who does need 10 grand. And if they take the loan. They're gonna owe you, you know, fifteen in two months or something like that, and just like payday loans, which I also like to investigate. People get hooked; they get in this cycle of debt, and they end up losing money. And so, the I met this cash advance guy. Uh, his name was Abe Zinas, and he worked out of this like ratty office in the financial district in New York. Because the financial district is not where the big banks that are. There's all sorts of like interesting characters downtown. It's where the cheap old office buildings are. And Abe told me about his business and about all these crazy rivalries within this cash advance business is full of crazy characters. One of his, he had a rival who is um, named David Glass, who was the inspiration for the movie Boiler Room, which was one of my favorites when I was a kid. And I would just loved learning about this world. And Abe told me, like, he was running one of these businesses, but he was like, I'm going to sell to Wall Street. I'm going to make a hundred million dollars. I'm going to be rich. And I was like, all right, sure. Um, but, and he was, a uh, he had grown up in, um, in Midwood in Brooklyn. He was a uh, an ultra, ultra Orthodox family. I'm like a not observant Jew. So I've always been fascinated also by this like world of Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. And he had, he just had this great story about how he'd learned about this business. He'd started at his own. He'd made a lot of money. He eventually moved to Puerto Rico to party and avoid taxes. Um, and one day I, got, I obtained a copy of this letter and it was like, Dear Abe, we would like to buy your company, like this weird boiler room I saw like downtown in the financial district for $100 million. Sincerely, Goldman Sachs. And I was like, okay, I think I should write the story of, of Abe now. Um, and I wrote this profile of him for business week and I was really proud of how it came out and I decided that I was going to seek out more characters who had these really amazing true stories and had some, you know, I did loan sharks, I did pump and dump schemes. I did, uh, penny stocks, I mean, uh, cat burglars. Um but I resisted crypto for a long time. I mean, I knew crypto was there, but I didn't think it, it was for me. Why didn't you think it was for you? I like a scheme that I can, that takes a little effort to unpack. Like these cash advanced guys, they had discovered, they took advantage of several legal loopholes that made it possible for them to charge higher interest rates. Like I researched this, they charged higher interest rates than the mafia charged, Um but they Invented these loopholes that made it possible, and I I figured out how that worked with my colleague Zach Miter. And once we exposed these loopholes, New York State um, passed a law closing them. Now they just moved to they just rented post office boxes in other states to get around that. So it was not actually that effective. This uh, loophole closing. I don't want to take too much credit, but I felt like in crypto, a lot of the schemes were just like, "Hey, buy my coin. It's so cool. It's going to go up." And then people would buy the coin, it would go up. And I just didn't think there was enough real, real, like even there wasn't anything for me to investigate. It was just sort of ridiculous on its face. And I remember pitching an editor at one point, I was like, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna investigate this, this crypto scam. Um, I'm, I'm gonna investigate this crypto company. I'm pretty sure it's a scam. And he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're all scams why don't you come back to me with you could investigate the one that's real. Um, and so, yeah, for a few years, I I avoided the topic. Um, but due to a weird uh, argument with a buddy of mine from high school, I kind of got pulled back
0: into to this uh, crypto world. So what was your first foray into covering crypto?
1: My editor from Businessweek, came by my desk and I was feeling I was I was sort of feeling this crypto it was ahead of the pandemic I was feeling this crypto FOMO like I'd I'd heard about from this friend from high school and other friends that they were making a lot of money on crypto and as an investigative reporter at Bloomberg we don't uh we don't trade stocks we don't trade crypto so I I couldn't actually do it I don't think I would have if I could have but I still felt kind of jealous that other people had happened on to this way to make money and that I was not doing it. And that made me kind of want to figure out how it all worked. Like, how are they making money? What's behind all these coins going up and up and up? And so I was kind of receptive to the idea of getting into crypto. And my editor came by and said, what do you know about stable coins? And what he was referring to are this particular kind of cryptocurrency where like most coins, the idea is like we create Z coin, you buy it for a penny, pretty soon it's worth a dollar. And then we're all rich. It's awesome. Stable coins are supposed to be always worth a dollar. And the idea is that, that you give me a dollar. I give you one stable coin. I put your dollar in the bank. You can go do what you want with that stable coin. But eventually if you want your real dollar back, you can bring me back your stable coin, and I will give you your real dollar back. I will have safeguarded it. So the stable coins are always worth a dollar. And the biggest one at the time was called Tether. Tether was so big that they'd issued more than 50 billion coins. And so that meant that they were supposed to have $50 billion in the bank somewhere. But it was kind of a mystery at the time where this money was. Tether wasn't saying. And... Tether was a pretty mysterious company and even just like a cursory search online revealed like a a ton of red flags. So it seemed to me like the kind of mystery I could get into. There's all I have, I don't need to understand how the blockchain works. I don't need to argue with some sort of Bitcoin zealot. Who's never going to change his mind. I just need to find these $50 billion or maybe not find these 50 billion dollars and expose that so i thought you know what let's take a run at it let's try and solve this this tether mystery and it turned out to be like the greatest assignment i've ever received because uh, i'm still working on trying to solve this tether mystery and it took me all the way around the world i met some of like the weirdest characters that i've ever come across and yeah i realized that i was totally wrong about crypto And it was full of the kind of weird people that I like to write about. And investigating it turned out to be the like adventure of a lifetime. Um, And I, I should say, like, this is my first book. And I've always wanted to write like a really exciting nonfiction book, but I never felt like I had found a story that merited like a full book treatment until I
0: came to crypto. Yeah, no, there's there's so many characters, so many people. I think Sam Ekman Fried, uh, you know, who's who's probably you know at this point the most famous crypto person, uh, really is the tip of the iceberg in many ways. Just to to continue on the, the Tether thread, because I think that you know your investigation of Tether and starting it with Tether with stablecoins is really important to understanding uh, you know when it ended up happening with with FTX. Uh, but but can you get a little bit into into Tether, the people behind Tether, uh, their personalities, uh, and, and and why they were doing what they're doing, and also where were that fifty fifty dollars fifty billion dollars that you were looking for?
1: One of the people who first come came up when I was looking into Tether was Brock Pierce, and he's often described as the founder of Tether. So it turns out there's a big dispute over who came up with the idea for Tether, and it's kind of hard to say. But he definitely deserves a lot of credit. And he was a former child actor, if you like a successful one. If you've seen the movie The Mighty Ducks, he plays young Gordon Bombay in Flashback. He misses a penalty shot. You know, but he'd, he'd, he'd had a, he was kind of like a B-list Macaulay Culkin. He'd, he'd starred in a movie where he was a naughty son of the president and Sinbad was like the Secret Service agent who had to keep him in line. Um, and then he'd gone on. He had this crazy career. I love guys whose resumes, like, where, like, you could just sort of give their resume, and that's like a story in itself. He he is the king of this. So, I mean, first off, um, he'd run for president. Akon Singer, who I really like, um, was his campaign manager, technically. Um he dresses like Captain Jack Sparrow. He talks in riddles. Um, basically, like if we were making a crypto TV show and we invented this Brock Pierce character, you'd be like, I don't know, it's like a little too on the nose. He's like the crypto guy that you would make up. Um, but he had... like, In the early years, Bitcoin was sort of like a thing, like a weird hobby for nerds. Kind of like ham radio or something. And there wasn't like this same drive to get rich. It, it, it was uh, more of like a curiosity. And Brock Pierce around 2012, 2013, he came into that crypto world. His most recent venture at that time had been um, World of Warcraft item trading company or EverQuest. These were like massively multiplayer online games. And there had a real economy had developed for like rare swords or armor in those games, and people in poorer countries had uh, started playing the games, like grinding it out, spending hours and hours playing the games to earn digital gold. And Brock Pierce had set up a company to like it's like a middleman to buy from these gold farmers, and mostly in China, and then sell to Western players who want to take shortcuts and. Jump ahead in the game, he'd made a lot of money on this digital gold company. So, like when Bitcoin came around, he was like, "Hey, I know that fake money can be a real good business. I, I, let's, how can I get involved?" And he was actually one of the first kind of venture capitalists of crypto, because just nobody thought this was like a area for businesses. It was just like like some kind of fun techy thing, and so. Among the many businesses that he incubated in those early years was Tether. Now, of course, Brock also, a great interview. He, I asked him, like, how did you think of Tether? And he said to me, I'm a doula for creation. I only take on missions impossible. And he talked about Tether as like a way to save the world. Uh, but what it really was, was in those days, it wasn't really... It wasn't that cryptocurrency was illegal but it definitely wasn't like hundred percent legal either it was in like this gray area and banks didn't really want to deal with cryptocurrency so if you had like a cryptocurrency exchange or cryptocurrency trading firm if you went to bank of america and said i'd like to open a bank account they might say no we don't want your kind here so a lot of the exchanges especially had trouble with this tether The idea was that if if these crypto exchanges, if you think of them as casinos, Tether is like, we'll be the chips. We'll take this role on. People can buy Tethers from us. Maybe the banking system will find that more acceptable. And then they can just go take those Tethers and gamble with them in crypto world. Then when they're done gambling, they bring the Tethers back and get their real money back, like the cashier at the casino. So the idea was that Tether would be sort of a workaround. For all the banking problems the crypto industry had, and but it didn't really it didn't really take off at first. Um, it rec- basically it needed to be adopted by all the crypto exchanges so that it would be useful. And in the early years, it wasn't so clear that Tether was legal either. This other guy had just made this. Uh, it wasn't crypto, but there was this other payments company called Liberty Reserve, and it was basically like like a pirate PayPal that didn't check people's identities. And it was really popular with criminals and the guy behind it had gotten arrested and was, he's still in prison. So Brock Pierce and the people running Tether were like, I don't know, this seems kind of risky. It's not really taking off. Let's get out of here. And they sold it to another group led by Giancarlo Vecini a former plastic surgeon from Milan. And so when I went to go start my investigation. I quickly learned that, you know, Giancarlo was the man in charge of Tether. He was the one I was going to have to get to if I wanted to find out what was up with Tether.
0: So Tether, you know, someone goes, they buy, let's say they buy 10 Tether with $10. Where does that, where do those US dollars sit? What are they, are they just sitting in a bank account? Are they investing that money uh, that's sitting there like a a bank would? What, What happens to that money? The idea
1: that most people have in this in, is that Tether would be doing something very safe with it, maybe just sitting it in a bank account. Um, but at the time I started looking into it, Tether had been sued for lying about its reserves by the New York Attorney General. And they'd been found pretty convincingly to have lied, at least in the past, certain points in the past. So I was like, I don't know if I can believe what Tether says about this money let's try and figure it out. And one of the first big clues I got that Tether might be doing something a little trickier with its money came at Bitcoin 2021 in Miami. It was, I'd just gotten the assignment and luckily all the Bitcoin bros were getting together at a big conference in Miami. And so I flew down, um, it was the first big conference after COVID restrictions were lifted. And uh, side note, Even though there's like 10,000 people in this warehouse, I did not get COVID. So I became convinced that that meant I would never get COVID. I was maybe COVID proof. No, still got COVID like right after, but um, not from the Bitcoin bros. Um, So I met this guy there, uh, Alex Mashinsky. He ran this company called Celsius Network and... Tether was an early investor in Celsius. I had seen that, so I had arranged an interview with him. Because the Tether people weren't talking, so I was like, let's just try and talk with everyone in their orbit, see what you learn. So, Mashinsky, he always wears these uh, – he was a big self-promoter. He was at every conference pushing Celsius Network. He wore these T-shirts that said, unbank yourself. And he pitched Celsius as like an alternative to mainstream banks, which he said were rip-offs. He's like, at Celsius, we pay you the interest. We're not like the greedy bankers. You can get 5%, 10%, 15% at Celsius. The bankers could pay you that much, but they don't want to. They're just using it to buy yachts. And so I sat down with him and he gave me this pitch. And I asked him, aren't interest rates right now, like I said, interest rates are important. Um, Aren't they like benchmark interest rates around zero? don't you have to do risky stuff to earn 5, 10, or 15%? And he was like, no, 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 no. And he had this whole long thing about how it was actually safer. They weren't doing anything crazy. It sounded very fishy. Um, but he said "He said to me, somebody's lying. Either the banks are lying, J.B. Diamond at J.P. Morgan is lying, or Celsius is lying. And I, I, I was kind of shocked that It's like, I didn't know much going into this interview. I was kind of shocked that he had, he told me he had $20 billion. And I'm like, with that business plan? Wow. Like, uh, and I marked down in my notebook. I'm like, when you get, I know you're after Tether, but put this down for like next on the list. But the problem with crypto is like almost everyone I met, I could have, it was time to put them on the list. At the same conference, I met Sam Binkman-Fried, who is not quite so famous yet. But um one thing that Mashinsky told me is, I was like, you know, do you do business with Tether? And he was like, yeah, Tether's great. Um, they actually gave me a loan of like one or two billion Tethers. And I pay like 6% interest on that loan. And so I'm thinking, I mean, this company Celsius sounds pretty risky. And it's borrowing money from Tether. That might mean that Tether is putting its coin supposed to be super safe but if it's in giving the money that it's holding for people to investing in it in celsius maybe tether's not so safe um and i got some other clues as i looked into it that made me think that there was reason to be a bit worried about about tether and its backing but amazingly even when crypto started to crash tether held up great uh because I I had thought that Tether was really vulnerable to a bank run where let's say Tether, let's say there's some news that Tether lost money to Celsius and let's say Tether's supposed to have 50 billion, but now they only have 49 billion that could set off. Basically like nobody, it's like a game of musical chairs. Nobody wants to be in that last missing billion. So even if Tether took a small loss, it might be in everyone's interest to just dump their Tether and get out. Um, but that didn't happen. And when all of crypto crashed, Tether stayed strong. And even when Celsius was re- to be a and was not able to pay back that loan, it turned out that Tether had taken Bitcoin as security for that loan. And they said they were able to liquidate the Bitcoin, pay themselves back without um, without taking a hit
0: that that's yeah that that's pretty unbelievable um that they were able to withstand that i i, I mean is, was there is there any way to ensure that each tether produced was can you know it does actually have a, a real dollar that went in backing it like couldn't they just if they wanted to because it, there's no regulator they could just make new tethers without anyone knowing
1: basically yes and they don't have a great track record record for honesty um however they've gotten this far and I'm going to bring up interest rates again. Benchmark interest rates have now gone up to 5%. So we're in the back when I started, in order to earn any money, Tether had to do kind of crazy stuff like lend money to Alex Mashinsky, the Celsius huckster. But now they can just stick all their money in U.S. treasuries. Tether doesn't pay interest to coin holders. And they're collecting 5% interest with really safe investments. So Tether actually, then they say that's just what they're doing. So if you believe their numbers, they're now clipping a billion dollars a quarter in profit. It's like a small operation. It's pure profit. And they're more profitable than Nike, one of the most profitable companies in the world. And Brock Pierce has since left, but Giancarlo, a great character in his own right, is a billionaire. Other people associated with Tether would be billionaires. And... If, hypothetically, Tether had, say, printed a billion extra coins in the past, they could now back those up with the profits that they're earning. Um, So, they came out of this whole crypto crash as big winners, arguably like the most successful company in crypto.
0: One of the uh, virtual places that people, crypto enthusiasts tend to gather was Twitter. Uh, now X, but, but back then it was Twitter and it was run by, by Jack Dorsey, uh, who himself is a big crypto fanatic. So, you know, why is Dorsey such a big crypto fanatic? And, and can you get into just a little bit some of the general political economic views of crypto boosters? So Dorsey, I
1: don't know what his motivation is, but he um, specifically is a Bitcoiner. And the Bitcoiners are a bit different from the rest of the crypto guys you know they believe that a lot of them want to go back to a kind of uh gold standard situation they have this whole they're all about sound money and i think that the u.s by printing money is inevitably going to lead to runaway inflation the dollar will be totally devalued and we need a strong currency like Bitcoin because there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. So, yeah, Dorsey came to the Bitcoin conference, you know, with a big log beard and a tie-dye t-shirt. And, he, you know, he talks about Bitcoin saving the world. He actually did a very, in my opinion, offensive Bitcoin experiment uh, just a couple miles from my house together with Jay-Z and... He held classes at a housing project in Bedside, the Marcy houses where Jay-Z grew up, that were supposed to teach the residents about how they could achieve financial freedom with Bitcoin. Um, And yeah, as if like the solution to poverty is like, uh, get rich quick on this like magic internet money. Um, But... Yeah so the bitcoiners they they have a lot of conspiracy theories about central bankers and I'm frankly like pretty ignorant about economic history um and they like they're libertarian they this is the like the that big bitcoin conference I mentioned the, the headline speaker was Ron Paul the old libertarian politician who had been like pro gold and now, um, was adopted by the uh, Bitcoiners. Um, so, and so those Bitcoiners, a lot of them will try to will actually criticize crypto startups, new coins. In their opinion, Bitcoin is the only is the one true coin. And they'll be, they um, will, you know, celebrate the arrest of Sam Bankman fried because he wasn't a true Bitcoiner.
0: So yeah, you, you mentioned him, Sam Bankman-Fried. He, he's is the man uh, of the hour, unfortunately, for him. Uh, you know, who's Sam Bankman-Fried? What is FDX? Uh, you know, what is what was your personal experience meeting meeting the man?
1: So, as soon as I heard about Sam Bankman-Fried, I was fascinated. He had this amazing origin story. So picture this: a nineteen or twenty-year-old student at MIT who is pretty intellectual and is really committed to this idea of utilitarianism, that all actions should be judged on what's gonna do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And he was trying to find what was his greatest good. What could he do? And so he had a meeting, a momentous meeting with a philosopher at the Oban Pan in Harvard Square where I used to hang out when I was a kid. And this philosopher said, hey, Sam, have you ever considered that maybe the best thing for you to do would be to get rich? Because, I mean, you could go be a doctor, but you can only help so many patients. What if you became a billionaire? You could donate all this money and we could hire, you know, you could fund all of Doctors Without Borders. We could double it. Wouldn't that be better? And Sam said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then I met him less than 10 years later and he's not, a, yeah, not a decade had passed since his meeting at Obanpan and he was one of the richest guys in the world. And he's 29 years old. He was worth $20 billion and he was still saying, I, I only got rich so that I could give this money away. I don't really care about money. I don't really care about crypto. I'm just trying to like win this money game. So that i can do the best i can for the world and he'd become the face of this effective altruism movement which was founded by the oban panful philosopher will mccaskill and i I'm, when i met sam at this bitcoin 2021 conference i was i just thought it was such an interesting idea because at that time he really hadn't given that much money away and he was in town he's in miami to celebrate the renaming of the miami heats arena um it was going to be now ftx arena after his crypto exchange so i was thinking the real thing to investigate about sam bakeman fried is will he give his money away is he going to live up to his plan and i also thought it was fascinating that he was really dedicated to doing good for the world but or, or so he said but he was running this crypto exchange. And I was really skeptical of crypto. And so I thought that if he's encouraging people to go trade crypto, he's encouraging people to go lose their money. And even if you think crypto is okay, um, even on the stock market, day trading is a losing strategy. So if you're, t- he was taking out Super Bowl ads that are basically like, go gamble on crypto, don't miss out. And that seemed a bit incongruous with. His goals as an effective altruist. So I thought he was a really intriguing character, and I wondered if he was some kind of Robin Hood, who was basically like, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get these first world crypto gamblers to trade on my exchange, and I'm gonna collect all the fees from their dumb trades, and I'm gonna go give that to you know people in Africa so I'd buy them bed nets to prevent malaria." That's like a favorite uh, cause of the effective altruists. Um. So, conveniently, well, one of the reasons I also wanted to get to know him is he was one of the biggest users of Tether. His hedge fund had bought something like thirty billion Tethers. So, I, after meeting him in Miami, I decided to go down to the Bahamas. Uh, He had, he eventually, he was in, he lived in Hong Kong when I met him, and they had a horrible COVID quarantine, which is part of the reason he moved to the Bahamas. So once he moved there. I was like, OK, I'd love to go hang out there, see what this guy is all about, see if I can figure out if he's sincere and check out FTX, which is supposed to be, you know, the most legit, fastest growing crypto exchange. So right after that Super Bowl, I flew down there
0: to profile him for Bloomberg. And what, what was that like, that experience of profiling him?
1: It was odd for me because I am not used to getting access to successful famous people like my thing would be like hanging out at these gritty offices in the financial district and talking to like loan sharks about the other loan sharks um i'm not used to like spending time with billionaires um but if sam if he had researched i don't think that he did but if he had researched like if he had prepared a dossier On this reporter coming to visit him zeke fox and decided like how do i win zeke fox over the technique that he used which i think was just him being himself it was perfect which i will now tell you what it was which is i was talking with his personal assistant in the break room which is just like a little like i don't know 10 by 10 room with snacks and i hadn't met him yet or i we had met at the conference but not at the in the bahamas And his assistant is just telling me about this trip to the Super Bowl, and in wanders Sam with his curly hair. He's not wearing shoes. He's just got his white crew socks, and you know his T-shirt, his khaki shorts, just like his uniform. And you know he he's not paying any attention to me or his assistant. He reaches. It's like two or three in the afternoon. It's pretty late for lunch. He reaches up into the cabinet, pulls out a packet of chickpea korma. The kind of thing like a microwavable meal from trader joe's that kind of thing does not microwave it which is pretty gross you've got to heat those things up um and then just starts spooning it into his mouth and his assistant's like hey this is the reporter who came here to profile you he looks at me it's pretty clear he does not recognize me from our previous interview i think we've done more than one interview at that point i don't think he recognizes me he i don't think he cares that i'm there and he's just like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And then, you know, shuffles back off to whatever he's doing. And I don't know if to me it somehow feels appropriate, you know, I, or if somebody's putting on a big show for me, that makes me suspicious. But he, by seeming not to care, he seemed kind of authentic and uh, trustworthy. Um, admittedly, like everything he was telling me was a lie. He was running this giant fraud, but that's how. Uh, that's how he won me over, and amazingly, I had told uh, his PR representative, "I was like, listen, the way I work, I got to see him in action. I'm just gonna like, I need to see him doing his CEO thing. We got to hang out. I don't want to just interview him. I want to see him doing his job." And Sam was just like, "Okay, sure. Pull up a chair." So, which, again, not normal. So I'm sitting there. He's just ans- he's answering emails from other billionaires. He's like on the company Slack, doing handling business. He's doing interviews with other reporters. He's doing media appearances. Um, the whole time he's playing video games too, and talking to me. And, um, like you, I can't help by being, I mean, as a reporter, right? Like you need to write stories that are interesting and most corporate executives are very boring. So it's hard not to be like, thank you, Sam Bankman fried for doing interesting stuff. So I have some material for my story. And he's willing to talk about any topic. He answers all my questions, again, with lies. But, uh, uh, and he really, even though he had an awkward manner, he did his best with reporters. Now, I have since heard, we've heard from his ex-girlfriend, his best friends, they testified at his trial. In real life, he could often be a jerk, a bully. Um, like they were scared of him, but for reporters- he had kind of a quirky charm. Um, And it didn't hurt that you felt kind of lucky that you were interviewing, you know, one of the richest guys in the world. Um, So yeah, I left the Bahamas after that first profile, still sort of wondering if he would actually give this money away, but not suspecting that he was running a giant scam. I thought the scam was just, it's a cryptocurrency exchange. A lot of the coins are probably made up and we'll go to zero. I didn't think that on top of that, he was stealing the money. Um, and part of why I was so convinced is I met a lot of his colleagues, and they really seemed like the nicest, most harmless nerds that, that I'd ever met. And I felt like I, I knew the type, and they didn't seem they seemed really sincere in their belief that they were gonna do good with this, the money that they made from FTX. And then I've seen since seen some of those people, you know, in in court testifying against Sam in the last few weeks.
0: So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that experience of seeing Sam in court and also, you know, what exactly was it in your book that was used as evidence to help convict him?
1: So about a year ago, exactly, FTX failed. And once it failed, I hemmed and hawed a bit, but then realized you got to get to the Bahamas and see Sam again because it was clear something terrible had happened. It seemed overwhelmingly likely it was a fraud. And basically it was pretty clear things were going to play out like this. He'd get arrested. He'd get charged. He'd go on trial. And I would, he'd start to be more careful about what he said. So I was like, get down there and interview him. So uh, I stayed up late one night and sent him a message because I knew he kept odd hours. And I said, he he loves to talk about expected value. And I still want to ask him this question. I felt like we didn't get to talk about this honestly because of the situation he's in. But he, so he believed that you should make all bets that have a positive expected value. And so what that means is like a coin flip is a zero expected value. 50-50, you win, you lose. But if the coin comes up, heads a little bit more often than it comes up tails, then that's positive expected value and you should flip the coin. And just because the coin comes up tails and you bet heads, that doesn't mean it was a bad bet. You might've just got unlucky. So I was like, hey, Sam, okay, FTX just collapsed. Did you make a mistake or were these all positive EV expected value bets and you got unlucky? And he was like, oh, that's an interesting question. And then I was like, Okay, cool. See you in the Bahamas, like tomorrow. Bye. Um, I flew down there and he eventually let me come up to his $30 million penthouse. We talked about this for hours and hours. And the thing he said a couple of things in that interview that I think were problematic for his case. And one of them was at the center of the fraud is that customers sent money to FTX. They thought their money was at FTX and was being used for like they'd look at their FTX account and they'd see, oh, I've got a thousand dollars in it. And it turned out that was not true. Actually, that money had been sent to Sam's hedge fund, Alameda Research, which used it for gambling. And so when I'm talking with Sam, he's like, well, listen, uh, a lot of traders at FTX used borrowed money. This was just part of the program no one should have been surprised that Alameda used some borrowed money, but this didn't make a lot of sense because Alameda borrowed so much money. So I was like, listen, Sam, did like Alameda really play by the rules or did they have special privileges? And he said to me, there was more leeway. And I mean, I put that in the book because it seemed to me like a big deal. Like he's admitting that Alameda didn't follow the rules of the exchange. Like that could be fraud right there. And so the prosecutor asked him about this. He took the risky decision of going on the stand and testifying in his own defense, opened him up to all sorts of questions. And One of them was the prosecutor walked him into this and was sort of like, did you ever say that Alameda had more leeway than other traders on the exchange? And he's like, I don't remember that. And then she's like, pulls out a physical, like a hardcover co- hard of number go up, walks it over to him. The defense objects, overruled, and she has him read that part of the book to see if it, and then asks him, "Does that refresh your memory about what you said?" And he says, "No, I still don't remember." But it, this went on and on because there are other things in the in that interview that that he said that contradicted his defense. Now,
0: and with this uh, this ruling, is there you know any immediate reaction that you have or, or reactions that you've seen around the crypto world? Uh, You know, what's what's your read read on this now? It's impact.
1: Well, the crypto, there's still a lot of crypto boosters out there and they just want to move on. They want to forget about Sam Bigman Fried. They want to forget about the Celsius guy, Alex Maschinski, who I mentioned before, and they want to forget that literally almost every coin crashed and people lost tons of money. And they're saying, you know, we've seen it before. There've been booms and busts. The next boom is right around the corner. And I think that's wishful thinking. And I think, um, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud was unusual. It was different than other crypto companies. There have been a lot of crypto scams. Each of them, you know, have little twists. And so it might not be fair to let Sam Bankman-Fried tarnish the rest of crypto. But I still think that it, it will be tarnished in most investors' minds. And when, let's say... You know, someone who's not that super, who hasn't thought about crypto a lot, maybe in a few months, one of their friends says, hey, have you checked out this cool new coin? I think it's going to pop in their head. What about the curly haired billionaire guy? Didn't he steal everyone's money? Is that going to happen to me? So I think it is a huge drag on the industry. And But I think the industry deserves the bad reputation because nearly everything I looked into in two years of going down this rabbit hole was totally overhyped and I, I struggled to find any real world use for crypto at all.
0: despite Sam's uh, genius and and quirky charm, like you said he, you know he, even when you first met him, uh, you know he imp- impressed you somewhat in his nonchalant style. Uh, you know his company it was it was uh, incorporated in the Bahamas. Um, it was didn't have a, a board, didn't have a CFO. How was he able to convince so many people, you know, intelligent venture capitalist people who are used to investing in companies to invest with him, even though they didn't have a a normal company?
1: Yeah. And those are the red flags that I wish I had made more of in that uh, when I first met him. Um, And like this conflict of interest between Alameda and the hedge fund and FTX, the exchange was no secret. And I believe I even mentioned it in this, an article that I wrote at the time. Like I definitely knew about it, but I just didn't think that anything so um terrible is going on. But I think for the big investors who invested in FTX, they maybe they're professionals, but I feel like they were driven by the same FOMO as, you know, the regular people who bought a little Ethereum or bought some Dogecoin or whatever. I think they saw in Sam, uh, you know, when they buy into FTX at a 20 billion valuation, they're not necessarily thinking I'm holding this for a hundred years. They're thinking this guy has a great story. Someone else is going to buy in at a 30 billion valuation next month. Um, The other thing is that Sam... He spoke the language of Wall Street. He'd worked as a, t- a trader at a very respected firm, Jane Street Capital. And he had this. He acted like he was skeptical of crypto. He was like, I'm not one of these crazy to the moon bros. I'm just going to build this crypto exchange. And as, as long as some people want to trade crypto, I'm going to give them the best place to do it. I'm going to undercut the other exchanges. And I'm going to make money in the long run doing that. And that, that story made sense. And it actually, FTX was valued so highly, like $32 billion, that I considered, I was like, should, I talked about this with Sam. Um, like once I sort of grasped what this, his utilitarianism was all about, I actually proposed to him. I was like, Sam, if you wanna help a lot of people right now, shouldn't you run a scam? Then you could make money quicker. And he was like, no, no, no. You can't make that much on a scam. He wasn't like, no, 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 scamming is wrong. He was like, charities don't want your dirty money. You can't make that much on a scam. Look how much I'm going to make at FTX running an honest business. And that all made sense to me. And so, uh, yeah. And, uh, the other thing with the venture capitalists, I mean, we've seen this before when you've got some founder who's hot, you're always willing to bend the rules. And the founder says, oh, I don't like having a board, they're so boring and annoying. And like, if you wanna invest in me, you know, you better go for it, you forget the board. And people, they don't wanna miss out and they they'll,
0: they do it. How much of this was Sam just being a, you know, one of a kind sort of idiosyncratic character and how much of this is just, you know, he was the person that sort of met the moment. Uh, and this is more about the overall system of of hype under capitalism.
1: A lot of big money saw there was money to be made in crypto somehow. And they were looking for some like smart guy to hand it to. And the crypto world had not produced I mean, there was there were others who collected a lot of this big money too, but there there was a shortage of like people who seemed acceptable to Wall Street in the crypto world. So I think Sam got lucky by like being that person at the right time. Um but I do think that Whatever the next hot thing is, people will be willing to overlook red flags to invest in the big time founder there too. Because it's kind of like the when you look at like venture capitalist resumes, like if you invested in Uber, that's like at the top of your resume, missing on a few things is not the end of the world. It's it's hitting these home runs. So uh, I do think it's like part of capitalism that these there is a euphoria around like the next hot thing and certain founders get
0: crowned as like the next big thing and get money thrown at them with this the story of Sam uh wrapped up uh you know his his fate is uh is is more or less sealed uh you know are, are there any other areas of of the crypto world that you think are are still really important to pay attention to as as maybe the next some of the next dominoes that, that could fall.
1: The next big one is Binance. Um, that's now, I mean, it's for years now has been like the biggest crypto company. The number. It's another exchange. It's the <laughs> biggest place to trade crypto now. And it's in like serious trouble with US regulators. I honestly can't keep track of the various regulators that are after them, but they've been accused of um, dealing with accounts in sanctioned countries, um, all sorts of uh, other violations. They've been based in. Very, it's been hard to pin down where they're based. They may have found a home base in the UAE now. Um, but I think um, the crypto world is discounting too much the possibility that Binance could have like serious legal issues, and that that could um, result in big problems for crypto as a whole.
0: Well, you know, I look forward to to seeing your future reporting uh, on these topics. I'm, I'm sure you, uh, you know, you, you'll have a lot, a lot more to say, uh, you know, when, when as the numbers continue to go down. Uh, well, Zeke, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was it was great to speak to you uh, about number go up inside crypto's wild rise and staggering fall. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Caleb. Nice to speak with you about it too.